Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. It's around 7 a.m. on the morning of May the 20th, 1935. Wealthy businessman Reginald Holmes is behind the wheel of his speedboat as it races across Sydney Harbor. With one hand on the wheel, he takes a few swigs from his half-drunk brandy bottle that he holds in his free hand. As Holmes looks ahead, the horizon sways a little, more so than it normally would from the rocking of the boat alone. Holmes can see Shark Island in the distance, a few scattered palm trees rising up from the low-lying mass. Holmes pushes the throttle forward and guns the engine. The boat accelerates. Holmes feels the wind on his face. It's not exhilarating draws tears from his eyes. He can feel something heavy pulling down his overcoat on one side. It's the revolver his good friend Albie Stannard gave him yesterday. Holmes had gone to Stannard in a blind panic. The police were closing in. They had Patty Brady, and they charged him with the murder of Jim Smith, the guy whose arm had been thrown up by a shark in a Coogee Beach Aquarium. Holmes knows the kind of man Brady is, and he knows the kind of friends he has. He remembers the time Brady came to the house, the morning after Smith's murder. How could he forget it? The whole thing was a nightmare. Brady had sworn then that he wasn't going to take the blame. He said if the cops came for him, he'd make sure he wasn't the only one who went down. It was a clear threat that he'd drag Holmes into it. Holmes remembers the words his wife, Annie, said to him recently. Don't bring disgrace on me. He remembers what he had replied, too. Whatever I do, I won't bring disgrace on you or the children, but the world will feel sorry for you. Now the time has come to show her what he really meant by those words. Holmes kills the engine. He stands up in the boat, lurching from side to side as it rocks in the cross current. He takes the revolver out of his overcoat pocket. Holmes's hand is shaking as he lifts the gun. It steadies as he places the barrel against his forehead. Holmes closes his eyes and squeezes the trigger. He's thrown out of the boat by the force of the gunshot. As he sinks beneath the surface, it dawns on him, he's still alive. The intense pain in his head tells him he didn't miss, but somehow a bullet to the skull wasn't enough to kill him. He ought to feel relieved, but he's not. The problems that pushed him to take his own life haven't gone away. Truth is, he messes up everything he attempts even his own suicide. It feels like a cruel joke. Holmes sees a rope hanging over the side of the boat and uses it to scramble back inside. He sits at the wheel, 
trying to work out what his next move is. He starts up the engine again and turns back towards the landing wharves. But he doesn't get far. He's hunched over the wheel, passing in and out of consciousness. When he hears someone calling his name, it's Fred Haas, one of Stannard's employees. Haas saw Holmes was in trouble and took a boat out to see if he could help. He drew alongside the drifting speedboat and climbed in. Now he's looking down into Holmes's face, an expression of concern on his features. Haas tows the speedboat back to the harbor, where Albie Stannard is waiting for his friend. Holmes hears Stannard and Haas discuss what to do with him. It's hard for him to concentrate, but he thinks he hears them mention the water police. Haas gets behind the wheel of Holmes' speedboat and starts her up again. Holmes loses consciousness. He doesn't know for how long, but when he comes to, he realizes they're heading in the direction of the water police HQ. Now Holmes grabs the wheel off Haas. You're not gonna take me in there, he shouts. Haas throws up his hands and says, if this is the way you're gonna carry on, drop me off. Holmes agrees and lets Haas out at one of the wharves. He then turns the boat back towards the open sea and pushes the engine to the max. At some point, he becomes aware that there's a boat on his tail. It's the water police, and they're in their own high-powered speedboat, the Nemesis. For the next four hours, yeah, you heard me, four hours, the Nemesis is in hot pursuit of Holmes' speedboat. At one point, the police draw close enough to shout for him to stop, but Holmes turns and attempts to ram him. A second police boat enters the chase, and eventually, Holmes realizes he's never going to outrun them both. He's virtually out of fuel. Blood is streaming from the wound in his forehead. It's over. Not just the chase. Everything. Drenched, shivering, and barely conscious, Reg Holmes surrenders to the police and whatever fate has in store for him. My name is Mark Dodson, and welcome to Detectives Don't Sleep. Each week, we'll shadow the world's most remarkable sleuths, real detectives who worked extraordinary cases. This week, we're back with the taciturn Australian detective, Frank Matthews, as he continues his investigation into the bizarre case of the shark that vomited up an arm. The arm belongs to Jim Smith. Matthews believes he knows who killed Jim, question is, can he prove it? As one death leads to another, Matthews faces a wall of silence from a community in fear. From Noiser, this is part two of The Arm and the Shark, and this is Detectives Don't Sleep. So, what provoked the extraordinary events that took place in Sydney Harbor on the morning of May 20th, 1935. What drove millionaire golden boy Reg Holmes to attempt to take his own life in such a dramatic fashion? Well, let's go back a couple of days to the evening of Saturday, 
May the 18th. Convicted forger Patty Brady is being held in police custody. He's been charged with the murder of Jim Smith and has just told Detective Sergeant Matthews that he wants to make a new statement. Now, previously, Brady had denied knowing anything about Jim's disappearance. But he now admits that he was with Jim on April the 8th. Now, this date is significant because it's the last day that Jim was seen alive. Brady confirms that he and Jim were together that night at the holiday cottage Brady had rented in Cronulla, a seaside resort just south of Sydney. Now, so far, Brady hasn't revealed anything that Matthews doesn't already know from interviewing witnesses. But then he drops a bombshell. Brady claims that Albie Stannard came to the cottage. Albie Stannard, Sydney Harbor royalty, the pampered son of an affluent family, and a close friend of Reg Holmes, the guy in the speedboat chase. Both Stannard and Holmes like to keep up the appearance of being legitimate businessmen. But Matthews knows they're mixed up in criminal activities, too. Crimes like drug smuggling, insurance fraud, and conspiracy to kidnap and murder. He knows all this because Jim Smith told him. Jim was a police informant, and that's the reason, Matthews believes, his arm ended up inside a shark. So to have Brady placing Standard at the potential scene of the crime is huge. Especially when Brady further claims that Jim went off with Standard and another man. I guess better. Brady now says that a little later, Reg Holmes also turned up at the cottage and stayed briefly. So now he's putting both Standard and Holmes there on the night of the alleged murder. But Detective Matthews has to be careful here. I mean, Patty Brady isn't exactly what you'd call a reliable witness. He's a professional fraudster. He makes his living forging checks. He even forged a letter in Jim's name to make the dead man's wife and son believe he was still alive. The way Matthew sees it, this guy lies way too much. He wouldn't know the truth if it jumped up and bit him. Still, Matthews is prepared to hear him out. So next... Brady says that the reason he went to Holmes' house early the next morning was to return a set of keys Holmes had left at the cottage, not because he'd murdered Jim Smith and needed to talk to the man who ordered the hit. No, it was all perfectly innocent. And as far as Matthews is concerned, perfectly unbelievable. Then Brady hits the detective with the biggest shock of all. He claims that after he'd returned the keys to Holmes, he ran into Jim Smith at a Sydney railway station, evidently still very much alive. They even had a little chat, with Brady asking Jim, where did you finish up last night? Apparently, Jim had answered, we went into town, but didn't give any specifics. Even under normal circumstances, Detective Sergeant Matthews is a man of few words. Right now, he's speechless. A 
American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listeners. Did you know you can listen to new episodes of Detectives Don't Sleep a week early by subscribing to Noiser Plus? For more information, head to Noiser.com or click the link in the episode description. There's some other details Brady wants to clear up. Remember in part one, we found out that Brady replaced a mattress and a tin chest in the holiday cottage he had rented. Now he finally explains why he did that. He claims the reason was because Reg Holmes told him to. Apparently, Jim had burnt one of the mattresses smoking, and Holmes needed the original trunk to put some bits and pieces in. Now, this is all very strange. Not to say implausible. I mean, come on. Why was Holmes worried about replacing a damaged mattress in Brady's Holiday Cottage? All right, so remember how in part one, Detective Matthews spoke to all those taxi drivers who told him that Brady frequently visited Holmes' waterfront mansion? Well, when Brady's asked why he went there so often, he says it was to discuss a scam he'd gotten Holmes involved in and not to talk about a possible plot to kill Jim. Now, the next part of Brady's statement, it covers the time period after Jim's arm surfaced in the aquarium. Brady claims that after he read about the arm in the papers, he went to Holmes' house to have it out with him. He told Holmes he was afraid he was going to get blamed for Jim's death. According to Brady, Holmes told him not to worry about it and even said, Smith's not dead. That's not Smith. You don't want to take any notice of that. To Detective Sergeant Matthews, none of what Brady has said adds up. Brady's strategy is to vaguely point the finger at Holmes and by association, standard, and make himself out to be an unwitting dupe. In all likelihood, the statement's a mixture of lies, half-truths, and even a few actual facts. The hard part's going to be checking out all the details. But if Matthews hopes to take this case to court, he has to follow up on everything. Meanwhile, Detective Matthews lets Reg Holmes know that Brady's been talking. It's all part of his plan to put pressure on Holmes. The plan works just a little too well. Holmes' stress levels shoot through the roof. By the evening of May 19th, he's a nervous wreck. 
Now, let's pick up the story on Sunday, May 20th, the day of the speedboat chase. When Detective Matthews and Allman hear what's going on, they hurry over to the Water Police HQ and are taken out on a police boat to talk to Holmes. As you can imagine, Holmes isn't doing so good. His face is streaked with blood. He can barely stand. He's confused and he's scared. When he sees Detective Sergeant Matthews, he says, They say I've been squealing, but you know how much I've been doing that. It's a revealing statement. It shows that as well as facing pressure from the police, Holmes was being intimidated by someone. The mysterious they, the nameless, faceless men who have the most to lose if the truth ever comes out. But to be fair to him, Holmes hasn't told the police anything, yet. The next words out of his mouth suggest that that's about to change. I'm gonna tell you all about it now, he says. Holmes is admitted to Sydney Hospital, where the bullets removed from his forehead. Miraculously, his physical wound is found to be superficial. Four days later, Holmes is discharged from the hospital. The same day, he walks into CIB headquarters, accompanied by a lawyer, a bandage wrapped around his head. Holmes chain smokes throughout his interview. The events of the last few days have clearly taken a toll on him. His face is pale and drawn, his eyes deep set in dark circles. His hand trembles as he lifts each cigarette to his mouth. He finally admits that, yes, he does know Patty Brady after all. He only denied it because he was afraid. Afraid of what Patty would do to him, and afraid of everything that would come out on the back of that admission. But now, it's time to set the record straight. He says that for months, Brady had been blackmailing him over his part in an insurance fraud. Now, this was the incident where Jim Smith scuttled a luxury yacht so Holmes and Stannard could pocket the money. Brady had threatened Holmes with exposure unless he kept paying out, saying that he had enough information to put Holmes in jail. Then on April 9th, Brady came to see Holmes at his house early in the morning. That's when he broke the news that Jim was dead. Brady had killed him after the two of them had gotten into a fight. Why would Brady tell Holmes this? It's a good question. Holmes' explanation is that Brady was trying to frighten him. He wanted to show Holmes that he was a dangerous man, so he'd better do whatever he said. Holmes takes a deep drag on his cigarette and closes his eyes. His voice is a barely audible whisper as he continues. The detectives lean in straining to catch his every word. The way Holmes tells it, Brady had a brown bag with him. He opened the bag and took out Jim Smith's arm. If Brady's purpose was to scare Holmes, it worked. From then on, Holmes did whatever Brady demanded, supplying him with money and arranging hideouts for him. Finally, Reg Holmes comes to the end of his long and harrowing account. One thing's for sure, 
Holmes is genuinely terrified of Patty Brady. But is he telling the truth? Matthews is famous for keeping his thoughts to himself. Sometimes even his own colleagues don't know what's going on inside his head. For now, it seems, his strategy is to keep Holmes sweet. As Holmes is leaving, Matthews offers to provide him with police protection. Holmes declines. It seems like an odd decision, but Holmes says that it would frighten his children and, in his own words, it would create a bad impression with the neighbors. But perhaps he's more afraid of the signal that it would send to the hard men of Sydney's underworld. Police protection, that's a clear indication that he's been cooperating with the CIB. So maybe he feels safer without it. If that's the case, it doesn't work. In just a few days, he starts receiving anonymous death threats. Oh, yeah. The hard men of Sydney aren't fooled. They know Holmes has been talking to the cops. Reg Holmes is now Matthew's star witness. But the detective still doesn't have a body, even though the date for the coroner's inquest into Jim Smith's death is fast approaching. And without a body, Matthews knows his case against Brady is shaky, to say the least. He can't even prove that Jim Smith is dead. So proving that Brady murdered him, it's gonna be a tall order. The race to find the trunk, preferably with Jim Smith's body inside it, becomes a matter of urgency. The detectives commission a plane to fly over the harbor. D.S. Allman is on board. He scans the crystal clear waters with powerful binoculars. He sees dark shapes moving ominously beneath the surface. Sharks. Occasionally, the creatures whip their tails and lurch forward with a predatory spurt. But he doesn't see anything that could be the tin chest. The following day, the Royal Australian Air Force joins the search. Suddenly, one of the Air Force spotters sees something promising, a black square on the seabed. With the lights fading, pretty soon they'll lose sight of the object entirely. The crew drops a marker so they can come back and find it the next day. Unfortunately, when they do return, there's no sign of the marker. Soon after, the search is called off. It's been an expensive and ultimately fruitless exercise. It's Tuesday. July 11th, 1935, the eve of the coroner's inquest into Jim Smith's death. Holmes has been called to give evidence, and he's dreading it. The following details of Holmes' movements are pieced together from various witness statements. First, Standard's company secretary, Bernard Cahill, sees Holmes sitting in his car outside Standard's office at around 2 p.m. He goes out to tell Holmes that Stannard is at lunch. According to Cahill, Holmes says that he talked to the police and now feared for he and his children's life. Cahill is naturally shocked, but at that point, Stannard arrives. Cahill goes back to work, and Stannard gets in the car with Holmes. The two men sit there for about 10 minutes, but it's not known what they talk about. 
Holmes then goes to see the barrister, who will be representing him at the inquest. The barrister has some bad news. He tells Holmes it's likely he'll be charged as an accessory to the murder of Jim Smith. This must have come as a devastating shock to Holmes, who'd believed that D.S. Matthews was on his side. Instead, it shows that Matthews was never fully taken in by Holmes' version of events. The barrister also reveals that he too had received a death threat. A note pinned to his door saying, are you prepared to die? Holmes is shaken. He drives back to Stannard's office at around 5 p.m. Once again, he stays sitting in the car, as if he's too frightened or maybe just too depressed to move. As before, Stannard comes out to talk to him, this time accompanied by a couple of his heavies, Norman Mulcahy and Sammy Berg. All three men get in the car. Stannard's in the passenger seat next to Holmes. Mulcahy and Berg behind him. If you've ever seen any gangster movies, you can probably picture the scene. Holmes is distraught. Stannard does his best to calm him, but the impromptu meeting ends after just a few minutes with Holmes still very highly agitated. Holmes now drives back to his house, where his wife, Innie, is waiting for him. As soon as he walks in, Innie can smell the alcohol in his breath. They have dinner together. Then Holmes heads to his bed, though he asks Innie to call him at 7.45, which she does. Holmes announces that he's going out again. She asks him where he's going, but he doesn't tell her. Instead, he just says, don't worry, I'll be all right. But she is worried, of course she is. And telling her not to worry only makes it worse. She says that if he's not back by 9.30 p.m., she's going to call Detective Almond. He warns her not to make a fool of herself. He drives off alone in his car at around 8 o'clock. It's the last time his wife ever sees him alive. At 1.10 a.m. the following morning, Constable Harold Casey is driving along the Sydney waterfront when he sees a car pulled up with his headlights on and the front passenger door open. Casey gets out of his squad car and walks over to the other vehicle to investigate. He finds the driver slumped forward, his head resting on the steering wheel, his hands together on his knees. As the beam of Casey's flashlight dances around the inside of the car, the officer sees blood oozing from a gunshot wound in his side. Casey checks for a pulse and quickly establishes that the man is dead. He lifts the head back and shines his flashlight into the face. The dead man is well known from photographs that have appeared in the papers. Yep, you guessed it. It's Reg Holmes. Someone finally got him. The timing of Holmes' murder is a catastrophic blow for Detective Sergeant Matthews. You see, today's the day the inquest into Jim Smith's death is due to begin. It's no accident, obviously. Holmes was clearly killed to silence him, but who's behind it? 
Ask yourself, who has most to lose from Holmes taking the stand at the inquest? If Holmes repeats the accusations he's already made, then the obvious answer is Patty Brady. But there's another man with a lot to lose if Holmes lets his mouth run on. Albie Stannard. If Holmes implicates Stannard in Jim Smith's death or in any other criminality, Stannard's reputation as one of Sydney's leading citizens will be in tatters. And if he's found guilty, he'll lose not just his liberty, but also his privileged lifestyle. His family, his friends, lose everything. The coroner's inquest goes ahead as scheduled, but there's no body and no star witness either. Brady's barrister challenges the legitimacy of the proceeding at every turn. It isn't long before the inquest is stopped without reaching a conclusion. For D.S. Matthews, this is a disaster. You can feel his case and his career falling apart. Matthews is still convinced that Patty Brady is Jim's killer. Brady's trial for murder is scheduled for September 9th, but there's every likelihood it'll meet with the same legal challenges as the inquest. Detective Matthews faces the very real prospect that Brady will get off. He can't think about it right now. Instead, he focuses on finding Reg Holmes's killer. Or killers. I mean, who knows? Maybe if he can move that case forward, he'll turn up new evidence that he can use against Brady. It's a long shot. And Matthews is far from hopeful. A wall of silence has arisen. No one's saying anything. Of course they're not. They've seen what happens to people who speak to the police. First, there was Jim Smith. Now, Reg Holmes. The message is clear. If you're thinking of squealing, you can expect to die like a rat. And then, out of nowhere, the team gets a break. A mystery informant known to this day only as number 17. Number 17 contacts Matthew's boss, the superintendent of the CIB, and names three men. Jack Strong, Sammy Berg, and Norman Mulcahy as Reg Holmes murderers. Now you may remember, Berg and Mulcahy were present at the meeting Holmes had with Stannard at 5 p.m. on the last day he was seen alive. Jack Strong's another of Stannard's loyal soldiers. He has a formidable reputation as a fighter and a hard man around the docks. So what about Stannard himself? The secret informer doesn't name him. But is there anything concrete leaking him to Holmes' murder? Now let's go back to early in the morning of June 12th. Soon after Holmes' body is first discovered, after visiting the crime scene, detectives Matthews and Allman show up at Holmes' house to speak to his wife. They find a number of friends and relatives there consoling the grieving woman. One of them is Albie Stannard. Almost straight away, Stannard blurts out, the wife and I went to the Regent Pictures and we were there from about seven until 10.30. It's odd. You see, no one had asked him where he was. He just volunteers the information unprompted. 
in that weirdly precise way, as if he'd rehearsed it. Detective Matthews is suspicious, but Stannard's alibi checks out. Multiple witnesses place him at the Regent Cinema the night Holmes was murdered. So many, in fact, it looks like he made sure he was seen there. There's something else odd, too. The timing, 7 p.m. to 10.30, doesn't match the program at the cinema. Stannard and his wife must have walked in halfway through the early showing of the main feature and then walked out halfway through the later screening. Yeah, almost as if it's more important for him to establish an alibi than to enjoy the movie. Why would he need to do that? Maybe because he knew someone was going to kill Reg Holmes while he was there. And the only way he could know that was if he'd ordered it. The car Holmes' body was found in is dusted for fingerprints, and a left-hand set is found on the top of the passenger's doorframe. This would be consistent with someone holding on to the open door as they leaned down and talked to the driver. Meanwhile, Matthews has his team scour the nearby properties for witnesses. They find one, a nervous guy with a severe stutter who lives on Hickson Road overlooking the crime scene. The man tells detectives that on the night in question, he saw Holmes' car parked below his window with its lights on. The passenger door was open and a man was standing with his left hand on top of the open door frame, leaning in, talking to the driver. The witness is certain that it was his left hand. Then he heard three gunshots around 9.30 p.m. He looked out of the window and saw the man who had been standing at the car door head off towards the harbor. Looks like things are starting to go Matthew's way, especially when Jack Strong, one of the men named by the mystery informer number 17, is picked up at his favorite drinking den. He allegedly says to the arresting officer, I'm glad it's over. I knew you'd be looking for me. When asked why, he replies, Reg Holmes' murder. Even so, Strong denies killing Holmes. I had nothing to do with shooting him, he says. I might booze a great deal and get a bit wild, but shooting a man, no. But when Strong's fingerprints are taken, his left hand turns out to be a match for the set found on the top of the car door. Finally, a breakthrough. But Detective Matthews and the team don't have long to celebrate. Matthews fears about the progress of his other case, the disappearance of Jim Smith, come to a head on September 9th, 1935, when Brady's trial for murder begins. Now, the trial collapses immediately. The big problem is there's still no body. The hard-pressed detectives just can't get past that. And with Holmes dead, there's no key witness either. Even the statement that Holmes made naming Brady as Jim Smith's killer is ruled inadmissible because Holmes is no longer alive to be cross-examined. The judge directs for acquittal. For Matthews, all hopes are now pinned on the Reg Holmes murder case. The inquest into Holmes' death begins on October 10th, 
1935. The coroner's verdict is death by homicide. But he goes even further than that, as he is allowed to under Australian law. He names Jack Strong as the suspected killer, with Albert Stannard aiding and abetting him. The case goes to trial. Over a month later, on November 18, 1935, Albie Stannard hires the best defense team money can buy. He also floods the streets outside the courthouse with his heavies, who are there solely to intimidate the witnesses as they go in. Tactic works. When Matthew's star witness takes the stand, you remember, the nervous guy whose window overlooked the murder scene. His stutter is so bad, he can't speak. Literally, he has to write his answers down instead. Oh, it gets worse. To Matthew's dismay, the witness changes his story. Now, you remember before, he had said that the man he saw had put his left hand on top of the car door frame. Now he maintains that the man never took his hand out of his pocket. It's obvious someone's gotten to him. It's just enough to put a sliver of reasonable doubt in the jury's minds. Oh yeah, Strong's fingerprints were found on the car door, but now his defense barrister can argue, oh, they must have got there at some other time, perhaps earlier in the day. There's no forensic proof that the man the witness saw was Jack Strong. Standard and Strong are found not guilty. So, what really happened? Who killed Jim Smith? And who killed Reginald Holmes? In the case of Jim Smith, the truth is, we'll never know for sure. Though there's no law against speculating, did Detective Matthews get it right? Was Patty Brady Jim's killer after all? Not according to the judge who threw the case out, and not according to Brady either. He continued to maintain his innocence to his dying day and would sue anyone who said any different. In their book, Shark Arm, writers Philip Roop and Kevin Meager argue that Jack Strong murdered and dismembered Jim Smith in a contract killing, ordered by Stannard and Holmes together. Their theory is that Brady came back to the cottage to find the aftermath of the murder and was forced to clean up and hide the evidence so that he wouldn't be accused. Strong disposed of the rest of Jim's body in the tin chest, but left the severed arm as a warning to Brady. Keep your mouth shut or the same will happen to you. So, how'd the arm end up in the shark? The most likely explanation is that Brady dropped it into the harbor where a passing shark snapped it up. Now, moving on to Reg Holmes' death, it seems fairly obvious that D.S. Matthews was right about who pulled the trigger, Jack Strong again. The theory goes that on this occasion, Stannard alone ordered the hit because Holmes was becoming a liability. As we know, Stannard's money and intimidating tactics secured his acquittal. After the trial, he and his wife moved to America. Stannard died in October 1987 in San Francisco at the ripe old age of 95. Detective Sergeant Matthews 
was promoted to superintendent of the CIB and retired in 1948 after 38 years of service. The tiger shark, who started this whole mystery, died of natural causes soon after it regurgitated the arm and its carcass was taken to Arthur Russell's fish oil factory for processing. Next time on Detectives Don't Sleep. It's January 6th, 1936, and we're up in the frozen woods of New Brunswick, Canada, at a remote railway outpost called Pacific Junction. The officers of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or Mounties to you and I, have been called to a burned-out cabin in the woods, where it seems that the entire Lake family, father, mother, and two infant children, have perished in a fire. But is it a tragic accident or something more sinister? What they uncover is a tale of murder and kidnap brought about by desperate poverty and the depression of the 30s. But will the Mounties get their man? Find out next time on Detectives Don't Sleep. Detectives Don't Sleep.